Oh, boy. All right, today's lesson in Mark chapter 5. We pick it up in verse 21. If you remember last week, really every week in the, in the gospel of Mark is busy. There's a lot going on. I mean, I, that's one thing that just always surprised me about studying this gospel is how busy it was, how active it was. It's just nonstop action. And last week we saw how tired they were when they got in the boat and they got in a storm. And as soon as they get out of the storm, it's the garrison demoniac and they have to get back in the boat, row to the other side. Now in today's lesson, verse 21, when Jesus had crossed over again in the boat. So now they cross the lake again, yet again, and they're on the other side, which is the west side, which is the Jewish side. Look, look who meets them. A great multitude. And so here's the crowd again with all their needs and all their demands. They're just all over him. They gathered about him, and he stayed by the seashore. He couldn't break free of them. And here's, the, here's what the story zeroes in on. What we're going to have here is a miracle on the way to do a miracle. They're like these two miracles interact. They're intertwined that we're going to study here in chapter 5. It's real interesting how the author does that and how he uses these two stories together. And it's really a series of of contrasts uh, between the different characters and the different uh, goings-on. Like you have Jairus, who's the synagogue official, who's a man, and and, uh, he's an important guy, a leader. He's he's well-respected. He's religious. He's wealthy. He's very visible out front. And then you also have, in the middle of that, the poor woman. She's anonymous. We don't even know what her name is. She's, she's hidden. She's secret. She probably is veiled. Doesn't want anybody to know who she is. She's an outcast. She's unclean. She's broke. She's thought of as a sinner. So this great contrast between these two people in the two different miracles. And then there's a contrast between them and the crowd. You've got these two characters, Jairus and this anonymous woman, that are contrasted with the crowd. The crowd is touching Jesus. They're pressing in on him. You know, you're like, oh, you just almost feel the pressure that Jesus felt. The crowd just wouldn't leave him alone, and they were just all over him. And the touching of the crowd, they're aggressive. They're somewhat selfish. And it's, you know, in many ways, whenever he has... Uh, kind of a conversation, you, you would say, with the crowd in several of the stories. What you find out is the crowds, uh, the reason they came to him was for the wrong reasons. The, the crowd itself was coming to Jesus because of the miracles. That, that's the main reason. They had things that they wanted Jesus to fix. So it's, I think it would be safe to say, it's opinion, but you could say they had a very selfish motivation and in, in closing in on him and touching him and pressing in on him and, and their demands on him. Uh, that is contrasted with the touching of the woman. The anonymous woman comes up, sneaks up from behind and doesn't want to bother him, doesn't want to slow him down, just wants to touch him because she feels like that there's power in Jesus. She believes that he's the Son of God and that if she could just touch him, she would be healed. So she comes uh, very quietly, very humbly, and with, I would say, a pure heart and with a childlike faith. And so you have the contrast of 
this woman touching him versus the crowds touching him. So look at the story. And when Jesus had crossed over again in the boat to the other side, a great multitude gathered about him, and he stayed by the seashore. And one of the synagogue officials, a leader named Jairus, came up. And this, this is an amazing situation. Typically, these guys would be proud, and they would kind of expect people to respect them and pay them notice. But we see this guy must have been really desperate because look what he does. Upon seeing Jesus, he falls at his feet and begs, entreats, and, and basically worships Jesus. He fell at his feet in all humility and entreated. That's begging Jesus earnestly saying. Notice the, the adjectives and adverbs here. Urgently, earnestly beg Jesus. My little daughter is at the point of death. You talk about urgent. Is there anything that any of us wouldn't see as more urgent than saving the life of one of our children? I mean, you can just imagine what this guy's feeling and how, how earnest and how urgent his situation really is. Please come immediately and lay your hands on her that she may get well and live. So you can see um, who he thinks Jesus is and the importance he places on uh, Jesus and the power that he might have to save his daughter. And so it's a, it's a very unusual scene. You can see in verse 23 and 24, he went off with him and a great multitude was following him and pressing in on him. So the urgency of the official versus the contrasted with the hindrance of the crowd. The crowd had their own needs and their own demands, and they wanted to grab him. They wanted to ask him questions. They wanted to touch him. They were holding him up, making it difficult to get to the little girl. And you can imagine Jairus was probably trying to part the crowd. You know, you don't realize how important this is, my daughter. You know, and so just try to imagine that scene and what was going on there. But then all of a sudden, verse 25 through 34, they're halted. Their progress is stopped. It was a slow progress to the crowd. Now he stops completely. Look at what happens in verse 25 through 34, a halt. A woman who had, a, who had had a hemorrhage, a uterine hemorrhage for 12 years, bleeding for 12 years, and she had not been able to get it cured or get any help from anybody. She had been, verse 26, to every doctor. And they had charged her. They probably had uh, health care like we have today, I guess, where no matter what happens, it goes up 20% a year. You know, I've, I better stop right there. I'll get, I'll get out of control. But she had endured much at the hands of the physicians. And she had spent all the money she had trying to get her condition cured and had had no help had no success, had not been helped, but rather had grown worse. And so whatever it was that they were doing for her or to her, it had actually made her worse. I can only imagine how they tried to treat infectious diseases back in those days. I mean, you can just, you know, it makes you cringe just to think about it. Um, and hearing about Jesus... Uh, she, had, she had heard that he had this healing power, that this was the Son of God, this is the Messiah. She had said, if I can just get close to him, if I can just touch him, perhaps 
His power will come and save me. Uh, So she thought, verse 28, if I just touch his garments, I shall get well. That's her childlike faith and her belief in Jesus. And when she was able to do that, look what happened in verse 29. Immediately, the flow of her blood was dried up, and she felt in her body that she was healed of her affliction. So she felt it. She knew that she'd been healed. So hallelujah. What, what an incredible situation. Before you can understand how big a deal this was to her, what this really meant for her to sneak up behind like that, and why we don't know who she is, you would have to study Leviticus 15. You know, go back to the Mosaic Law, because in first century Israel that Jesus came into, the, the law, not only the, the ceremonial law, but also the religious law and the criminal law of, of every law of every kind, was they were governed by the Mosaic Law. And in Leviticus 15, verse 11 through 30, Moses commanded all the people that if there's an infectious disease and, and listed the, the hemorrhaging, the bleeding, uterine bleeding, that they were to be quarantined. Quarantine, you know, isolated. Well, we can understand why now. But in those days, uh, they, in their traditions, went a little bit different direction with this that really kind of offensive to us today. They said uh, what Moses was saying was that they should be isolated and that whatever uh, she was suffering from was because of her sin. So the, the reason she's bleeding like this is because of some specific sin that she's committed or is continues to commit. And so she is not allowed. She's considered uh, ceremonially and religiously, spiritually unclean. She's not allowed to go to the synagogue. She's not allowed to go to the temple. And she's not allowed to be in public. And anybody that touches her is also considered unclean. And so you can imagine uh, what a horrible situation that would be for her. I mean, you talk about being shunned, rejected. What would that feel like? What does it feel like that people look at you and say that you're contaminated? That nobody, you know, can come anywhere near you. Nobody can touch you. You're excluded. You're shunned. You can't even go out in any social, religious situation at all. You can just imagine the the emotional, the mental pain that she had. So she comes to Jesus, you know, hiding kind of, using the crowd to kind of hide, just thinking, I'll come up from behind him. He doesn't, I I don't have to bother him. He doesn't have to see me. Because according to the Mosaic law, the traditions they developed, if she touched Jesus, he would be unclean. So you can imagine that is why she was acting like this. But Jesus heals her. He heals her. So you can see that those traditions meant nothing to Jesus. This poor woman, uh, she had not only been bleeding physically, but she had also been bled of all of her money, so to speak. They had bled her of all of her money as well. So I I don't see how you could get any worse off than this poor woman was uh, not only physically, but mentally and emotionally, religiously, everything that you can think of. Uh, And so I see the irony here. Think of the irony. Number one, an untouchable, she's an untouchable. 
and untouchable touched Jesus. And he touched her so as to save her, not only from the bleeding, but from her sin. Secondly, she had paid all she could afford. She paid everything to be cured. And guess what? The grace of God was free. Isn't that, isn't that amazing when you think about it? She had searched, she had looked, she had begged, she had paid people everything she had, but now the grace of God was hers for free. And really, she's kind of a parable of the human race. When you think of the whole human race out there, they're, they're actually separated from God, they're alienated from God and fellow man. Uh, they, tried, they try everything, she had tried everything, searched everywhere, And before she finally came to Jesus and received his grace freely. Um, Now, before we go on, I want you to think for a minute, if you're Jairus, what are you thinking? You had had this great urgency and Jesus was coming with you and you were headed to save your daughter who's dying. And what happened? This woman stops him. Or he stops to talk to her. If you're Jairus, you're tapping your foot going, the time is of the essence here. We got to go. Come on. I was here first. My daughter has a more urgent need. Right? I mean, that's what I would think. That's why I think that's what he was thinking. It doesn't say, but that's what I would be thinking. And yet Jesus is just very calm, patiently talking to this lady and dealing with her. She tells Jesus her whole story, lays it out there for him. So, and, and again, Jairus is like, what's going on here? <laughs> Lord, don't you even know that my daughter is dying? Come quickly. You know, so you can see all this, all this action that's going on and the different point of view of all these different people. Uh, <laughs> and so as you look at the story, uh, I love his disciples. They're, they act as foils. They're the straight men, you know. It's like uh, every, everything, every conversation, they're clueless about what's going on. And it's really funny because we can relate to this. Uh, after she touched Jesus, look at verse 30. After she touched Jesus and immediately Jesus perceiving in himself that the power proceeding from him had gone forth turned around in the crowd and said, who touched my garments? He asked that question. Who touched my garments? Now, here's his disciples. They're going, really? Who touched your garments? There's like 5,000 people here grabbing you. Everybody's touching you. What do you mean, who touched my garments? You know, it just brings out the fact and the contrast that the way this lady touched him was dramatically different from the way the, gra- the, tr- the crowd was touching him. You see, there's something different about the way she touched him and the way the crowd was touching him. So this is kind of a, a strange, kind of a weird situation. His disciples said to him, verse 31, you see the multitude pressing in on you and you ask us who touched you? Are you kidding and so it's kind of a strange deal to us as well as them. I mean, when we think about think about this. The miracle seems to just perform itself. I mean, she sneaks up behind him, touches it, and then she's just healed. 
What, what's up with that? Uh, she's not supposed to be out in public. How'd she get out there? Uh, and with thousands touching him, how did he feel her touch and not theirs? Uh, and did, what was this, some kind of magic garment? Some kind of secret magic garment? Is that what was going on? I mean, it's just, there's a lot of weird stuff here. Uh, and so I thought Jesus was omniscient. But here he didn't even know who it was that, that touched him. Am I just the only one that asks these questions? Y'all are looking at me like I'm nuts. Like, oh, I didn't think that. I had this figured out from the get-go. No, I was like Peter and John and those guys. I'm going, who touched you? What? And so here's the answers to some of those questions. Uh, we know from verse 34, since Jesus turned around and looked at her and addressed her, he knew exactly who touched He knew exactly what had happened. He, he in his sovereignty and his omniscience, planned this all along. And he knows that in delaying, he knows, Jesus knows, that this little girl's going to die. Right? He knows this stuff. So Jesus purposely addressed her and said, Lady, ma'am, daughter, your faith has made you well. So he knows about her. He understands why she came and what was going on here. And he purposely healed her because of her faith. Your faith has made you well. He did know her. He asked that question for the purpose that she would publicly identify herself. Because what, what was she before? She was hidden. She was secret. She had a veil. Didn't want anybody to see her. She wasn't supposed to be in public. Jesus was forcing her to come out, reveal herself, and make an open public confession of faith. You talk about a born-again story or whatever you want to call these kind of transformations. Here's somebody who was totally shunned and isolated, and now they're in front of this huge crowd saying, I was sick and now I was healed. I believe in Jesus and now I'm saved. I mean, it's just, it's wild. And Jesus planned the whole thing, obviously. And it's no magic cloak. He says, the power came out of me. And it was because of her faith. She had a pure heart and a childlike faith and he rewarded it. And of course, Jesus asked the question in order to elicit her public confession of faith both for her benefit, for the benefit of his disciples, and for us. We're studying it. We're reading it. And the author put it in here for that specific purpose. And so notice the four views uh, of the people involved in the story. First, Jairus, as I said earlier, he's sitting there tapping his foot going, we got to go. And, and then the woman, she's desperate. She's humble. She doesn't want to take up his time. So she sneaks up and just from behind and touches him, not, not thinking anybody would notice. Then you have his disciples who are clueless, have no idea what's going on now or really ever. <laughs> I thought we were in a hurry. What are we doing talking to this woman? You know? And then Jesus, Jesus patiently teaching, patiently loving them, patiently saving those who believe, healing and giving everybody what they need. 
Look at verse 33. The woman, fearing and trembling, aware of what had happened to her. So he comes to her now, and she comes to him in great fear and reverence and awe because she's felt herself healed, and she's amazed. And then she told him the whole truth. So she sat there and told him her whole story about her suffering, about all the doctors, about the fact that she was broke, uh, probably all the emotional pain from being so isolated. And he said to her, daughter, very, very kind, generous term, your faith has made you well. Go in peace. Now, that's a very important phrase there. Go in peace. Because, obviously, in Jesus' economy, in his knowledge, and the reason he came into the world is because mankind, the whole human race, is alienated from God. They're alienated from God because of sin. And so when Jesus says to somebody, go in peace, what is he saying? Your peace has been made with God. You're forgiven. Remember the guy at the house that they let in through the roof? He said the same thing to that guy. Go in peace. Your sins are forgiven. You know, blew everybody's mind. And that's what he's saying to her here as well. So she's not only physically healed, she's spiritually healed as well. Awesome story. And then you have a pivot right here. Jesus confirms that she's saved, and then all of a sudden there's a pivot in the story because all of a sudden I, I kind of thought we were talking about this lady, and now the other story develops again in verse 35. While he was still speaking, they came from the house of the synagogue official, Jairus's house, and there's news. Your daughter has died. Your daughter has died. Can you imagine that, what a downer that was? Everybody just probably just went, oh. Notice the assumption. Don't trouble the teacher anymore. What's the assumption? This is irretrievable. Death is that point where the problem is irretrievable. It can't be fixed. There's no coming back from death. It's over. Don't bother to go to the house. It's over. And look what they call him. Don't trouble the teacher anymore. So what's the assumption? This guy's a great teacher. That's who this guy is, right? Now, if they were talking to me, there wouldn't be any reason for me to go to the house because <laughs> I can't do anything. But for Jesus, there's always hope. There's always hope. You never give up. And Jesus confirms that by, look what he says. Jesus overhearing about what was spoken, seeing everyone's, you know, being deflated. Jesus says, do not be afraid any longer. Talking to Jairus, talking to the synagogue official. Do not be afraid any longer. Only believe. So don't give up. This is not irretrievable. Death is not irretrievable. Your faith can still trust in the midst of this kind of hopelessness. You never, never give up. And so he says, let's go. Let's go to the house. So you know, they go, okay, if you say so, we trust you enough, let's go. And so they go to the house. And when he gets there, 
He only takes, and there's probably several reasons why. We'll talk about it in just a minute. But he only takes uh, his inner entourage of Peter, James, and John. They go into the house with him. And verse 38 tells us that when they came to the house, you've got kind of a wild uh, a situation there. Uh, and also you'll see a contrast between the doom and gloom of all the people involved versus Jesus. His attitude is, don't be afraid, just believe. Everything's cool. It's going to be all right. And I, I happen to believe, and we'll talk about this in a minute, that even if he hadn't brought the little girl back to life right then, that message is still valid. Don't be afraid, just believe. Everything's going to be cool, right? Because if he doesn't bring her back to life here, he's certainly going to in the resurrection. And that's Jesus' attitude. So he's the first one, and his disciples would think this way and write this way later, that they refer to physical death as sleep. They're just asleep until the resurrection. That's their perspective and their way of thinking. And so they get to the house, and, and, and look what they're met by. A commotion and people loudly weeping and wailing. What's, what's going on with that? Well, in, in well-to-do places, well-to-do homes, well-to-do families, the local synagogue hired professional mourners because these were important people and they wanted to have you know, a big deal made out of this poor little girl's death and wanted these people comforted. They had professional mourners. We're told about this in several stories in the Gospels. And so here's all these professional mourners. And they're great actors, you know, and they're screaming and hollering and dancing around and making all this commotion, as it says. And entering this commotion, Jesus says to them, why make such a big, big fuss, a big commotion? Why, do, why all the weeping and wailing? The child has not died, but is asleep. The child has not died, but is asleep. Now, these professionals, <laughs> you know, they put aside their deep emotions for just a second because what he said to them was so funny. And they began laughing. Like, what? Asleep? And so he puts them all out. Get out of here. And he took along the child's father and mother and his own companions, Peter, James, and John, and entered the room where the child was. Pretty wild. We're, we're sitting, we know what's going to happen, and we're like, could, could that really happen? Is he going to really do that? I mean, that's pretty wild. It's amazing. Yeah, he does. Taking the child by the hand, he said to her, in Aramaic, little girl, I say to you, arise. And immediately the girl rose and began to walk, for she was 12 years old, and immediately they were completely astounded. There, you can imagine how astounding that was. It's one thing, you know, for a woman's bleed, bleeding to dry up, or, or for, for some guy, you know, like Peter's, remember the story with Peter's uh, mother-in-law? had temperature, and then that was cured. I mean, you could say Jesus healed, or you could say, well, maybe, you know, that was just power of suggestion. He gave her a placebo. I don't know. 
But when he brings somebody back from the dead, that's mind-blowing, right? There's no refuting that. I mean, so they are astounded. And when you think back on last week's story and compare it to this one, I'm sitting there thinking, wait a minute, Jesus had transformed a deadly storm into a calm, a ferocious wild demoniac into a gentle missionary, an unclean outcast woman in this story before into a faithful believer, and now by his word, death into mere sleep. And at most of these stories, the end of which, that question is, who is this guy? He leaves the crowd saying that or or thinking that. Who is this guy who who has power over life and death? And by the way, in Luke's account, Luke uh, tells us something. It kind of adds to our, our theology and our doctrine. He says that Jesus commanded her spirit to rejoin her body. So that confirms the fact that we're made up of a physical body and a spirit. And when the physical body dies, the spirit lives on. Pretty cool. Jesus actually, you know, in the gospel accounts, this is is one of three times that Jesus brings people back from the dead you're probably most aware of the uh, most famous of the stories is the raising of Lazarus Uh, and this so it doesn't happen very often uh, in comparison to all the other healings he does there's 35 miracles and only three of them had to do with bringing back the dead so uh, verse 43 uh, another shocking thing that you're probably wondering about and on your questions if you did your questions uh, I asked you and I didn't give you any help Usually I try to give you help, you know, but this one I didn't just to see, you know, if you could figure it out because there is no right or wrong answer. We don't really know. But he gave them strict orders that no one should know about this. So he tells everybody in the house that saw the little girl come back to life, don't tell anybody about this. Well, that's surprising. You would think he'd want everybody to know. But here's three reasons you, know, you could probably brainstorm and come up with a bunch of them. But here's just three that, I, that I'm guessing at. Number one, the timing is not right. He doesn't want uh, the, the timing of, of this to get out uh, at this time. It's not till later that he's going to be going to Jerusalem to do what he actually came to do, which is to die on the cross. And so when he comes into Jerusalem, he wants a big crowd. So you have Palm Sunday, right? But now at this time... Uh, there's a problem in, in the timing. And then the second reason would be crowd control. You notice how hard it is to move from one place to another. These crowds are just, they're paralyzing his ministry. And so he's trying to limit the number of people that are uh, in the crowds. And then thirdly, don't forget that he's the suffering servant. He's the suffering servant. And these crowds are coming to him. Not as a suffering servant. They're trying to make him a political, military hero who will lead them out of bondage from Rome and give them peace and prosperity again like they had under Solomon and David. But that's not why Jesus came. Again, he came to die on the cross. He's not going to allow these crowds to take him and make him 
some kind of king or general or whatever. So it has to do with his purpose. And you can see that in other stories, like in John 6, uh, after he feeds the 5,000, it literally says, in verse 15, that they tried to take him and make him be their king. And he said no, and he withdrew from them and went up on the mountain. And so that's why I would say, uh, that's why I would guess uh, the secrecy motif. And so as we look at these stories, just a quick recap, what did we just see? The author, Mark, uh, wraps these two miracles together. They interact. Uh, even though the man and woman are so completely different, they both have this tremendous need for Jesus. One's an insider. He's wealthy. He's out front, very public. The other one's an outcast. She's poor. She's in hiding. That seems to be a barrier, but it's not. Jesus knows no barriers. And in the kingdom of God, nobody's become somebody's in their relationship with Christ. And as you look at this woman's story, this miracle that Jesus did for her, I see her as a story of the gospel, really. And by the way, almost any one of these stories you can take and you can find the gospel in it. And here's what I'm talking about. In verse 25 through 26, you have the condition of the alienated sinner. It's the condition of the human race, as I said before. The human race is alienated from God without Jesus. And Jesus comes into the world to make reconciliation, to bring God and man together. So verse 25 and 26, the condition of the alienated sinner. And then verse 27 to 29, you have the compassion of the Savior. He actually cares about this poor woman. Nobody else cares about her, will have anything to do with her. She can't even go out in public and reveal herself. Jesus cares, Jesus loves her, and Jesus would die for her. And then thirdly, in verse 30 through 34, you have her confession of faith. She believed in Jesus, and her faith not only made her well, but her faith allowed her to go in peace. She believed in Jesus. And in verse 36, you have the witness. What is the result of her believing? What is the change in her life? Jesus says, don't be afraid any longer, only believe. And I would say to us today, how does this apply to us? The, the very same thing. The very same thing. We wait in faith until that day when Jesus will say to all believers, little children, I say to you, arise. That's what we wait for. We're looking towards the resurrection. There is no death now that Jesus has come. Jesus will come back for all of us and say, little children, arise. You've been asleep, arise. Let me close in prayer. Lord, thank you so much for blessing us with these stories, these exciting, action-packed miracles that, that you did. It's such a blessing to, to see your love for these people, to see their great need and your love for them and, and how you meet their need. There's no barriers to your grace. And Lord, we just uh, look at our own lives and 
And we certainly may not seem to be as desperate as these people, but in our own way, Lord, we are. We need you. We need you desperately, Lord. And we thank you for coming into our lives and being our Savior. And in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.